This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, in the early days of the Christian church, and I say early days, this would have persisted until uh, Renaissance, printing press, the first 13 to 1400 years of the church to varying degrees, our people, like all people, were essentially illiterate. And that's hard for us to wrap our mind around, um, to have an entire group of people, a community of people who are essentially illiterate. Um, Because of that illiteracy, uh, extensive illiteracy within the church, the church had to get creative in its pedagogy, its teaching. And one of the things that the early church did was it employed various methods beyond the ability to look at a text and read a text and ingest a body of information Uh, The church was really creative in terms of its music, in terms of its liturgy. We had to reinforce ideas. We had to reinforce constructs, theologies, doctrines through repetition. And we would do that through inventive music, inventive liturgy. One of the things that the early church uh, did to seek to remind us, to instruct us, just to basically instruct us of the story of God, the story of Jesus was the church decided very early in its earliest centuries to employ the calendar as a teaching device and to annually take us through the life of Christ, the season before his birth, which we called Advent, where we embrace the heart of the prophets of Israel and the longing of the people of Israel for a Messiah to come. We built our entire services for four or five weeks around those themes. Um, We move into a season of Christmas, and then we're now in the season that the church referred to very early on as Christmastide. And I love the word Christmastide because it it evokes the idea that we are in the wake of Christmas. Christmas is not. You don't just look into the manger and see God born and and, uh, feel like you can move on quickly from that incredible revelation. So the church has constructed seasons like Christmastide. Now, we in the West have kind of lost the sense of Christmastide, but literally that's the space that we call the 12 days of Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas from December 25th to January 6th, with January 6th being a day that we refer to as Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is then followed by Epiphany Tide in some traditions. In other traditions in the Christian church, it's followed by a season of ordinary time. And then we enter into the season of Lent, Lent is that 40 days, 40 non-Sunday days before Easter where we say, you know, there's no way we need to just skip up to the Lord's passion and uh, have one big service where we all wear our best clothes and, and have Easter egg hunts and move on. No, we prepare just like Advent prepares for Christmas. Uh, Lent prepares for Easter and the resurrection. We come out of that season and we go into a period of uh, a time called Easter Tide. Again, we're in the tide of Easter. And Easter Tide culminates in Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the inception, the birth of the Christian church. And then we go in the summer and the fall into a period of ordinary time. A time where we're not celebrating high and holy days, but we're celebrating the presence of God in the ordinary. Uh, I think the church was very, very smart to employ the calendar in this way. So I won't talk a lot more about that, but uh, the reason that we observe days, special days around here in seasons, is because I I, I think that is still a good way of instructing. And I think a little bit sadly that one of the reasons the church was so big on incorporating in its calendar and its liturgy the story of Jesus is because the church for 14 centuries knew that the people had no access to that story other than just the verbal communication of the story, they had no access. The people couldn't read. Now, a lot of us have gotten away from that calendar recognition because we have the Bible with us all week long. We live, we bathe in the story, hopefully. But the reality is, I was talking to a minister friend of mine who's in a a higher type church, and by higher church, a more liturgical church. They read lots of scripture. I mean, they have, you know, 45-minute services, but lots of the 45-minute service. I mean, they read almost the whole lectionary, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, Epistle. And I asked him, I said, man, you take, you guys take 10, 15 minutes reading Scripture. And he looked at me and said, Stan, 
It's the only time our people ever, ever touch their Bible. I thought, man, what a shame. I'm glad we're not like that. So, <laughs> so it is good that we follow the calendar. So we're in the season of Christmas tide leading up to Epiphany. In the season of Christmas tide leading to Epiphany. Epiphany is literally just an anglicized version of a Greek word that means to manifest or to appear. And it, it really is, this season is built around the idea that God didn't just come to the manger, but God came to the manger. The Son of God came with a purpose, and that was to ultimately erupt onto the scene and to change the world for the better. And, and he did just that. So the three stories that literally are looked at in our lectionary, in our rhythm of reading the text, there are three stories that we often look at during this season. Uh, the Eastern Church focuses a lot on the baptism of Jesus. And the reason they focus on the baptism of Jesus is because they believe it was there that Jesus kind of put himself forward as the Son of God and began his earthly ministry. The real emphasis of Epiphany is the distinction between the presence of God and the manifestation of God. And maybe you understand what I'm saying there. The distinction between the fact that God is always present with us, but we're not always aware of that presence. And so the manifest presence of God is dependent often upon the eye of the beholder, whether we see God or not. We all believe theoretically by faith that God is everywhere because that's the nature of God. God's everywhere. But is God recognized in our life? You remember Jacob after wrestling with God, when the wrestling match was over, Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. So the Lord was present, but he was not manifest in a way that was appreciable for Jacob, and that had to do with the way Jacob saw things. You remember Mary with the post-resurrected Jesus? The Bible says she was there in the presence of Jesus, and she was weeping because Jesus was dead. So you can't just say, well, the presence of God cures everything, because God's always present. But even in the presence of God, Anybody remember who Mary thought he was? She thought he was a gardener. So at that moment, the God of eternity, the Son of God was relegated to teach her how to plant rhubarbs or tomatoes or till the soil. Why? Because if you see a gardener, you get a gardener. God doesn't exert God's self beyond what you see generally. That's not always the case. I think God probably often goes beyond what we see. But we're not able to appreciate the distinction and get the full benefit of what's happening there. The Bible says, finally, this gardener couldn't stand it, and he looked at her, and he said, Mary. And when she heard him say her name, peace flooded her. And she said, Rabboni. And she saw him. Now, was he there before she saw him? Yes. But it took her eyes opening. So epiphany is the season when we say, yes, God has always been present with man. Emmanuel is true, not just in the manger, not just with the coming of the Son of God. Emmanuel is true over all time, all seasons, all places, all people. God's always present. David was not hyperbolic when he said, if I make my bed in hell, you're with me. Can't get away from God. But there were two thieves at Calvary, equidistant from Jesus, fingertip to fingertip, maybe a few feet from him. One saw a Savior and prayed. The other saw a thief and cursed. And both got the benefit of what they saw. So it's not just the presence of God. And Epiphany really exerts that. And so the Eastern Church, the, uh, the more Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Coptic churches, uh, a lot of that is really coming to the West now and is all the rage. I have a lot of Christian, uh, my Christian friends who are going to Greek Orthodox, those types of churches. Well, their big emphasis right now in Epiphany is the baptism because the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove and set upon Jesus, and Jesus went from there, the Bible says, into the wilderness, and then out of the wilderness he erupted into his ministry. A lot of evangelical churches trying to be high church focus on the first miracle of Jesus. Anybody remember what the first miracle of Jesus was? 
He turned water into Welch's grape juice, the Baptists say. And it was a really great cut of uh, grape juice, too. Really good. And so he, a lot of our churches focus on that first miracle because that's where Jesus in earnest began his ministry. Perennially, though, the main text to focus on in this season is Matthew 2, 1 through 2. And I want to read just a couple of verses there. And then I want to read another text at the end of our Lord's life, juxtaposed against this first one, and we'll come back to it momentarily. But Matthew 2, 1 through 2. This is the epiphany text, the post-nativity, post-Christmas, Christmas-tide text. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. This story of eastern wise men, magi, you remember we called them magi, men who came following a star, generally we say it was three, we don't know how many actually it was, our plays always have three wise men in them, but they came from afar following a star, which is an interesting point we'll come back to in a moment, and they ultimately found themselves face down presenting their gifts to a baby in Bethlehem. Now, this kind of messes up our Christmas story, but as biblical scholars really delve into the timeline of Scripture, they will tell you that this did not happen in the scene, you know, the shepherds and the wise men and everybody there at the manger. It didn't happen there. This was probably eight to nine months later. It was probably when Joseph and Mary were in a house. It was at least a few months later, but it was not the nativity scene. This was later on down the road. Jesus had been born, and now he was a, a pre-toddler, an infant almost on the verge of walking. And these three, as one writer so aptly said, uh, they looked up and followed a star, and they looked down and saw a baby. They came and they saw this God who had come near and this one born to be king of the Jews. Now scholars argue the question of who these guys were and where they came from. A lot of scholars, and I've read reams of material on this, um, but a lot of scholars say he was from India. Uh, some say that he was these uh, wise men were from China. Most scholars say that they were probably from Persia. Some scholars say, you remember the song, We Three Kings? That's not without substance because a lot of people believe that they were, not a lot, but some scholars believe they were three kings of small empires, uh, city-states who came. Others believe that they were religious priests from another religion. Uh, some believe that they were astrologers, and astrology, I think, could cross over with that previous group, the priests from another religion. If they were indeed from Persia, and if they were indeed priests, then we understand the astrology or astronomy. Depends on how you look at it. Um, the reality is that, well, let me get to this. The reason that we use this text for epiphany is because this text emphasizes that this one born to be king was not simply the king of the Jews. He was the king of the whole world. It is bothersome to some, it nonpluses many, that while the priests of our religion labored at their jobs circumspectly, a few miles away, resting in a manger, was the baby that all of their prophets had longed for, the Messiah that they had wished for, prayed for, preached about for many centuries. And yet, none of our preachers were there. But there were folk of a religious ilk who came to see Jesus. And they were folk from a different religion. From a different country, who looked different, talked different, and even believed differently than we did. And so the church for years has used this text to say that when God erupted on the scene in the life of Jesus, portending 
the apostolic call to go to the Gentile world, not just the Jewish world, is this story of Gentile men coming to pay homage to Jesus with religious fervor. Now, I want to say this about that. What in the world are Zoroastrian priests from Mesopotamia? What in the world are Zoroastrian priests doing showing up with religious commitment at the birth of a Jewish Messiah? 500 years before, our people, the Jewish people, had found themselves in captivity. We fell into captivity uh, to the Babylonians somewhere between 600 and 586 was the final deportation. But over a 15-year period, Babylon from the east crushed us and took us away captive into that foreign land. We went into that land and Jeremiah prophesied. You remember the famous text in Jeremiah 29 that we always quote, uh, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Well, that text, Jeremiah 29, is a text being spoken to the people who have gone into Babylonian captivity. Because a lot of false prophets were speaking to them and saying, hey, God told me to tell you guys that we're going to be in Babylon two years and we're going to be home. And that's just what the people wanted to hear. You always want to hear you know, the, the best possible answer. But God spoke to Jeremiah and said, those are false prophets. The people are not going to be in captivity for only two years. They're going to be there 70 years. And Jeremiah said, your point telling me all of this is, and God said, I want you to go tell the people, the people telling them two years are lying, tell them it's going to be 70 years. Jeremiah said, they're not going to want to hear that from me. They want to heap to themselves, as Paul said, teachers having itching ears who want to tell them what they want to hear. They're going to kill me. That's why Jeremiah was the beleaguered prophet. You remember, he wrote Lamentations, and they put him in a pit. He, didn't, he was the unwilling prophet. He's like, I don't want to tell them that. They'll kill me. God said, you go tell them. Jeremiah said, how am I going to get this castor oil down their esophagus? God said, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to tell them, thus says the Lord, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Not to harm you. Plans to do you good. Tell them you're going to be there a long time in captivity, but tell them, I said, build houses while you're there, plant vineyards, I will bless you, and I will bless even the Babylonians through you, and you will live at peace with them, and your life needs to go on even in a foreign land. Jeremiah evidently sold the people on that because they hunkered down and they stayed there until 539. Wasn't a full 70 years, but with most numerology in the Bible, it's more metaphoric and general in type than specific. 539, the Babylonians fell to another near empire called the Persians. We know this extra biblically. We have all kinds of record of it. There was a great king in Persia by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus from near, I mean, they were a contiguous, smaller empire. They took down the Babylonians. Remember Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in the biblical story of Daniel, how they fell? Well, Cyrus came in. When Cyrus came in, Cyrus was a king um, <clears throat> with a religious bent to him. Cyrus was a predecessor, a presage to a more civil type of empire an empire that was less about dominion and more about what would later be Greece and Rome's MO of, remember Rome, Pax Romana, peace of Rome, live and let live. We will allow you to maintain some nationalistic distinction if you will support the empire. We won't destroy you and subjugate you. Well, Cyrus was really a predecessor of that. And Cyrus, as we understand him, was a, a, a fairly religious man. Cyrus was surrounded by a religion that we now know as Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster, thus spake Zarathustra. Zoroastrianism was also a very benign religion, uh, a very inclusive religion. But interestingly, Zoroastrianism gives us our earliest records beside the Jewish people Forgive the history lesson here a minute, but Zoroastrianism gives us our first hints of what we now know as monotheism. I want to tell you what else Zoroastrianism gives us. Zoroastrianism in the 5th and 6th century, Cyrus's religion and the Persian religion, begins to give us a more refined view of the afterlife. Heaven, hell, 
a bifurcated judgment where people are judged and go to one place or the other. The Hebrews had not developed that yet. You say, well, the Hebrews were monotheistic. Not so much. Their God was monotheistic, but in the centuries prior to the captivity, they were not monotheistic at all. They were very polytheistic. Why do you think they went into captivity? Because they were always going after other gods, right? They learned monotheism, which God had been speaking to them for a long time, through going into captivity, not simply because captivity was a punishment, but in Persia, they evidently cross-pollinated with the Zoroastrians. Because when we leave Persia in 539, Cyrus said, you can go home back to your homeland. The people came back. That's where we get the books of Ezra and Nehemiah from. They came back, they rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed in 586. Solomon's temple was destroyed. They rebuilt the temple between 539 and 515. It was called Zerubbabel's temple. That was the temple that Herod refurbished, and it was the temple that Jesus went to. And it was the temple that was summarily destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans later because Israel was not adhering to Pax Romana. Well, if you go back in 539 when we came home, we came home from a place where God said, I will bless you there, you can live life there, they'll bless you, you bless them, live at peace with the Persians. They did exactly that, and it seems they must have done that religiously as well. Because we come home with a more refined view of monotheism, which the Zoroastrians also had. We came home for the first time, the Hebrew people in the later literature of the Old Testament, they start talking about a devil and demons and a heaven and a hell and an actual physical afterlife, all of that from captivity. Now, all of us like for our religion to be the premier one, so what we like to say is, we were there and the Zoroastrians got all of that from us. And the Zoroastrians, you know what they say, right? We gave the Hebrew people these ideas. Well, of course we say they didn't give us those ideas. You know, nobody wants to be given the ideas by somebody else from another religion. Now, that might be incredibly bothersome to you, but that's the story, and that story culminates in a story that Matthew leads with in his second chapter, a story of a Jewish king being born, not just a Jewish king, but from our orthodoxy, God come to the world. And while our priest did their things, Brian, Zoroastrian priest, said, we have been tracing for hundreds of years. Now, our people did not have within our system of religion anything that had to do with astro astronomy. The stars were not a part of our theological system. But the stars, and again, whether you call it astronomy or astrology, alchemy or metallurgy, it's up to you, but the stars were a part of their system, their hermeneutic, their way of interpreting spiritual things. And you may not like all of that, but we had the book and we had the God and we didn't go to the manger. And they had stars and Zoroaster and guess who showed up at the manger? And that's God right from the beginning with a very inclusive spirit saying, just work that out in your own head, those of you who think you have a corner on God. Somehow, you can leave off with all the fighting about who influenced who, and you can just give in and say, I don't know who influenced who, but somehow the Zoroastrian religion and the Hebrew religion syncretized enough that woven into the fabric of their very system of seeing the world spiritually, they wove our story in, and when we didn't show up, they showed up at the manger. And the season of Epiphany is that season when we back off from our hubris and presumption, and we remember that God's kingdom is bigger than us, and God's people is bigger than us, and this is the story that the early church said we're going to build into the fabric even of our text from the very beginning 
to remind us that we have always been resistant to other people coming in contact with our God. Even in the book of Acts, before it was the book of Acts, it was actually just the story of the church. The Bible says even the brother of Jesus, his name was James, and he, of course, nepotism supreme, he was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Who else to be the leader of the church at Jerusalem? Jesus died, it's his brother. And yet when Peter came and said, you're not going to believe this, the Gentile people, non-Jewish people, they have received the Messiah Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, said, no, can't be. He belongs just to us. Well, finally they wrestled that through. By the 15th chapter, James, the brother of Jesus, apologizes and is quoting Old Testament scripture to defend the inclusion of Gentiles. The church changed. We were corrected. And that wise church, as they were building the construct of our text, they put this story in from the very outset to push against our hubris and our exclusivism as we relate to God. Now, how'd you like that for a history lesson? Did I just glaze you over? It's important stuff, and it's good stuff. That's not just a history lesson. That gets to the heart of what the text is trying to say to us. Now, beyond all of that, here's the personal side. While the scholarly banter, the theological philosophy that I just did, well, all of that is good stuff, and, and it makes for interesting reading and interesting thought, and I think it's provocative and important. The most relevant part of this epiphany story of the Magi is the question that they ask, and it's what I want to leave you with today to chew on through the week. I didn't have time. Christmas, I was too busy eating this week to fully refine this, so I'm just going to take it as far as I took it. Don't you hate that eating inertia that you get at Christmas? You're just sitting there, bored as you can be, you know, don't have anything to do. Well, what can I do? Oh, I know what I can do. Another bowl of chocolate ice cream, chocolate syrup. You get that one down, you're like, 15 minutes later. I mean, how many times, how many times can you watch It's a Wonderful Life and you're back in there on the cookies? It's just eating inertia. You just eat and eat and eat. So I was too busy this week eating to get this fully refined, but I'm going to take it up to the point that I think I can leave you with it and it'll, it'll be some good work for you to do this week. The question they asked that day as they came to the house, knocked on the door. Remember, they weren't in the cave, the little manger. They came to the house. And the question they asked was, where is he? Specifically, they said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And 2,000 years after they first asked that question, as the cliche goes, wise men are still asking that wisest of question, where is he? It's the question of epiphany, and it's the question, I think, of all mankind, not just for the 12 days from Christmas and Christmas tied to epiphany, not, not even fully satisfied in epiphany and the eruption of Jesus onto the scene, not fully satisfied in the manger and not even fully satisfied 2,000 years later with a very well-constructed Christian church. But where, where is he? Where is God? That question is ultimately the question that rests in the bedrock of every human heart. Where is he? Where does God appear? Where does God show up? Where does God manifest? Generally on the Sunday after Christmas, the lowest Sunday of the year, most of us are home folk. There could be one or two people that slip into a day like this and maybe they're asking that question. People do come to this church, people who have not found God, people who have no concept of God except their longing. Some even screaming the question. And they slip in here like the wise men coming from afar, Gentiles, if you will, outsiders to the Christian faith. And the stuff we do that is so normal to us looks so strange to them. I mean, think about all the stuff we do that we're just used to. And they slip in here. I, I, a young lady slipped in here not long ago, invited by a school teacher. One of our girls teaches over at um, Centennial and a young girl there in the high school really going through some hard times, abusive home, 
and she came here. I talked to her after the service. I asked her how she liked the service, and she didn't give me the perfunctory answer of this was nice and that was nice. Lucy, she looked at me and said, I had no clue. It would be like me going into a Masonic lodge. I wouldn't know what they were doing there. They have customs and things that only Tom Hanks knows what's going on there. No, that's another. That's, that's another. I'm, I get those things confused. But anyway, I, I talked to her and I, I said, did you, did you enjoy? And she said, I don't know if I enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it. But... She said the song that the woman sung, and she began to talk about the song. The lyrics of the song touched her, and she said, I began crying, and I cried until I began laughing, and I laughed until I kept crying. And she looked at me almost scared and said, I have to think about this. She has continued to be a part of our church since that time. And I watch her as she learns the stuff of Christianity. But every time I see her, I think of, I think of those who come to us, outsiders to the Christian faith, inquiring, searching, not yet Christian, but interested enough to be here. And maybe they don't articulate it, but the question is, where is he? Where is God? There are others who supposedly found him years ago sitting here. There are others who have been with God for many, many decades. And yet after all of that time as an official card-carrying, baptized celebrant of the Christian church, you have strangely circled back around to that question after all of this time, where is he? That question has begun to stir in you. It has fomented a sense of uneasiness and strange discontent. You, you honestly can't believe that you even have that question. You thought that question was settled so long ago and it feels so sophomoreish. You're embarrassed even to admit to yourself that that question's arising in your heart. Where is he? So whether you're a wise man from afar or whether you're an insider, that question really is a profound question. I experienced that question in two different ways this week. I, as always is the case, anytime I get to go home for anything, I always make my way down to Little Green Acres nursing home, and I go to see my grandmother, my Alzheimer grandmother. And she's still there enough that she knows me with her eyes, though she doesn't know me with name anymore. I told you for years, I go in there and I say, hello, Dabo. That's what I always call her, hello, Dabo. And for years, she would say, hello, Stan. And Stephen, this week, I walked in, I said, hello, Dabo. And she said, hello. And I said, hello. But her eyes knew me. And I crawled, after a while, I crawled up there in bed beside her and snuggled up against her, which I've been doing for 46 years, various sizes and shapes. But we lay there in that bed, <laughs> And I was so thankful for the time. And we began singing songs, which is what we always do, because my granddad was the song leader at the church, and her dad, my great-granddad, was the song leader before him. And we began singing the songs, and she, know, she knows all the songs. Doesn't know her name. She even, Mike, she would talk to me, and she says, when is that dead man coming back? She's talking about my granddad. Well, he was Lavelle for 60 years. Now he's that dead man. But oh, she loves that dead man still. She loves him, misses him, cries, and sometimes she doesn't know why she's crying. But we lay there in that bed and we sing the song, so she doesn't know her name. She doesn't know my granddad's name. She, I asked her, finally she knew I was Stan, and I asked her what my middle name was, and she said, Alan. Well, that's close. That's my brother's middle name. And when I told her my middle name, she said, oh, of course. Well, we lay there and we sang the songs, and man, she knows all the verses, sing them all the way through. And I was sitting, I would quote scripture, and she would know the scripture. She'd finish every scripture that I would quote. She'd finish it. And it reminded me again, David said, thy word, O Lord, have I hid in my... And I thought, well, this makes sense to me. 
may not make sense to anybody else, and it, it may make scientific sense because it's just deep-seated memories, you know, are remembered. But I like to think when David said, thy word, O Lord, have I hidden my heart, that hardening of the arteries and Alzheimer's can't get to that. It gets to the brain, but not to the heart. And because I know my granddad's down in that heart, she didn't know his name, but man, she knows when I walk up the streets of gold, all four verses. She knows in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made. I paused, and she said, flesh. We lay there, and we sang, and we sang, and we sang, and finally I got out my, my video camera. I wish I had it up here, my little phone, and I, show, I wish I could put it on the screen. And I said, sing, One Lost Sheep. That's a song she and my granddad, Antonio, went all over town singing. And she said, oh, I love that song. And she began, clear as a bell, the shepherd went out. <laughs> and that, still singing alto. She can't sing anything but alto. That's what she sung her whole life. Granddad standing beside her. The shepherd went out to search for his sheep all through the night or the rocky steep. Save for the 90 and nine in the fold. But said the shepherd, Something is missing. There must be one more. All through the night or the rocky steep. I'm forgetting the words. Man, she sang them straight through. She got the second verse. She started singing it. And her voice quivered. And she said, that's where I always cry. We lay back in the bed. And you think that's not precious. I turned the camera off. Had both verses and the chorus reprised. I put my head back on the pillow. Ryan, she raised her hand. and She said, looked at me and she said, hasn't the Lord been with us all the way? I said, oh, he has, grandmother, he has. I finally peeled myself out of that bed and left there. It was so bright and so rich and so true. Headed over to another family get-together for Christmas and Just before the meal, stand, why don't you pray? Preacher always has to pray. Have to do all your family's funeral. There are some liabilities of this job. You have to pray when you don't feel like praying and do everybody's funerals, which is hard. So I get up there in front of my, all my cousins, 42 of us first cousins. And there's three in every grade. We have 115 kids, 115 second cousins. They all live right there. If you whip one of us... <laughs> You got to keep going up the food chain till you finally get to CD. And you will not whip him, I'll tell you that much. You don't want to get to CD. But that was our family. Fighting, loving. But I sat down with one of my cousins after I prayed and we were sitting there waiting to eat. He looked at me and he, he said, Bill, he looked at me, he said, you still believe all that stuff. He's got... Two terminal degrees, and he's headed back for another one. Brilliant. We grew up in, you know, sitting in the same church. He said, You still believe all this stuff? And I said, I think so. Which stuff are you talking about? He said, You know my stuff. I said, well, I don't believe all of it. You know, I don't believe that God worries if a woman cuts her hair and all the some of the silly stuff that we grew up with. But I yeah, I I, I think I do. I do believe this stuff. He leaned back half nervous and half condescending and we're close enough we can do that to one another he leaned back Terry and he said well I don't I don't and he looked at me and he said Santa Claus reindeer and I said maybe I can't prove it you can't prove it but Sometime I feel like I can't hold on to it, but I feel like it holds on to me. And he starts talking. We talk and eat Aunt LaRue's dumplings and somebody else's turkey and dressing. We eat and eat and eat. And finally we get up, we go outside, we walk around the little Church of Christ church there. We used to ride our bikes and we walk across the street to Alfred Rose Tax Accounting Service and a little strip mall and we talked about the grocery store there beside it, little bitty convenience store and little 
this little space. And man, it looks so big back then. Now it's so small. But we talked about how we used to go there with a dollar, if we had a dollar. And man, we could buy a lot of candy. Remember the little brown paper sacks? You walk around for 30 minutes. All the candy was like a penny or three cents or a nickel. And you could fill that bag up for a dollar. It took 30 minutes, but we'd finally... You, you wanted to make sure that you stewarded your dollar well and got the max bang, the sugar bang for the buck. And we walked around and, oh, Carlot, still there after all of these years. Man, this is, I'm digressing. I'm almost done here, but I'm digressing. They had a 76 Mark V Lincoln with 79,000 miles, one owner. Woo! That thing's hood stretched from me to you, Brian. I mean, you remember that big hood on that Mark V? You lift that thing, it's about eight feet long. You could put a jacuzzi in the trunk, literally. Big old 79,000 miles, red carpet in there about that thick. Looked like it had never been set in. I, if I'd have had 2,500 extra dollars, I'm telling you, I'd have been driving all the way back to... You remember those things? You drive down the road, you're doing like this with the steering wheel going straight as a string. That thing just floating, nothing tight about it. And we just keep talking. Well, Sandra, he keeps talking. And I'm thinking to myself, for somebody who doesn't believe in all this stuff anymore, it sure is bugging him. And he gets to talking about his life, and his life has gone so south and so bad. And finally, we're out there, and he just looks up, and he almost grimaces. And I can't remember exactly what he said. But through the grimace, I heard the wise men's words. He could have just as well said, where is he? And I remember put my hand on his shoulder and I told him, I said, I said, from my perspective, I'm not worried about you because you're on a journey and it's going to be okay. And I said, I do believe one of these days you're going to look back and say, he was with me the whole time. But I, I thought about my grandmother in that little nursing home bed bathing in the presence of God. And I thought about my smart cousin who had gotten disabused of all this silliness. I thought about both of them and I juxtaposed them in my mind and I don't know how it all sorts through, but the central question in both of their hearts is where is he? And I felt my grandmother knocking on the door, whispering, where is he? And immediately saying, why, there he is. And I thought about my cousin with all of his scrambling and all of his stressing and all of his trying. Where is he? And I thought about Job. I went forward and back and right and left, and I couldn't find him. I thought about the season of epiphany. I thought about appearances and what makes one woman hang on to him so tight and somebody else, he seemed to slip through his academic fingers and he just cannot quite put Humpty Dumpty back together in his mind. And I thought about one more text and it's just a few verses. I want to read it to you before we go. Luke 24, um, verse 28. We'll just read this one. This is after the Lord had resurrected. By this time, two of his disciples were nearing Emmaus and Jesus was on the journey with them. It was the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. Now I want to tell you the rest of that story. Well, the first part of the story is he had just resurrected and he had appeared to the women. And after appearing to the women, the Bible says that he went straight away from there and he came to a road heading away from Jerusalem and there were two of his disciples on it to a little town called Emmaus. These two guys, we've talked about it often, they were talking to one another about how they had, they had pitched their, they had hitched their wagon to the wrong team. They had 
sold themselves for a pipe dream, and they were so disappointed because they said, we've just wasted our life. We thought Jesus was the guy, and he went out and got himself crucified. Now we've got to start all over again. And I don't know if we have the strength. So they're bemoaning the fact that Jesus was their guy and they had lost him and Jesus was dead. And then all of a sudden the Bible says, strange picture, but it reinforces the idea of epiphany, that there's a difference between the presence of God and the manifestation of God. Because Jesus comes right up, wedges in between them and says, what are you guys talking about? And they begin to explain to Jesus how Jesus is gone. Sounds like some of our prayers, doesn't it? They begin to explain to Jesus how Jesus is gone. And Jesus discreetly just listens to their story, doesn't say, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? He just walks with them. See, sometime you're in the presence of God, but there is no epiphany. They walk with him. And I want to say this, whether there's epiphany or not, your safety doesn't depend on epiphanies. Your peace of mind depends on epiphanies. Your safety depends upon the presence of God. And you got that. Now, you want peace of mind? That's another story. That's epiphany. That's when you see him. I mean, when was Mary safe? When she was in the presence or when she said Rabboni? I think she was safe in the presence. Now, she received peace when she saw him, but she received the presence of God based upon his character. So Jesus is walking with them and the Bible says they get almost to the place they were going and they looked at Jesus and they said, time to go, we're going to go in. And Jesus, the Bible says, looked at them and said, well, I'll see you guys down the road. And as he turned, the Bible said to leave, they stopped him and said, hey, fella, your thing about Jesus is he does not get offended if you just call him fella. Now, a lot of religious folk who love him will get offended if you call him fella. He doesn't, though. He's just glad to be called something by you. He'll stick around. He'll stick around. And they said, hey, fella. And Jesus stops and says, yes. And they said, dangerous road out there. Don't spend the night. He doesn't look and say, are you kidding me? You don't know who I am? Call me fella, won't you? No, he looked at them and said, why, thank you. Any invitation. He's like that little cat you can give a little bowl of milk to. You never get it off your feet again after that. He'll just follow you. He comes in and he sits down, and the Bible says he looked at them. Somebody had some scripture, or they were talking about scripture, and maybe they even had a scroll, and he opened up the text. They didn't even know it was Jesus. They'd been with him for so many years. They didn't even know. And he opens up the text, and he begins reading the scripture, and they said they saw scripture like they had never seen it before. No epiphany. No epiphany. Heart's broken. You know why? Jesus is gone. No, he's right there. Well, he's present, but he's not manifest. That's epiphany. He finally, he has enough tools in his tool belt. He finally couldn't take it. And he looks over on the table and he sees a piece of bread. This is why we believe in the Eucharist communion so much as a church. He looks over, walked with them, they didn't see him. Talked with them, they didn't see him. Read scripture to them, they didn't see him. Talked theology, they didn't see him. He sees a piece of bread, he reaches over, takes the bread. As they're looking at him, they think he's going to take a bite. He takes the bread and he breaks it. And the Bible says when he broke the bread, epiphany. They saw him. I don't know. I don't worry about people. I don't feel like I got to get people's name on the dotted line before Jesus comes back tonight or their soul's going to be lost forever. I just don't feel that way about people's journey with God. It's not the way my journey with God's worked out. And I don't feel like that kind of imposition SWAT team evangelism really works anyway. I walked around with my cousin looking at Mark 5s and talking about candies and old times. I watched my cousin look up at a blank sky and cry and shake his head and essentially say, where is he? And I thought to myself, 
you're on your journey. One of these days, you're going to realize that through this dark time, it was a part of your journey with God. I used to think you take a journey with God, then you mess up a little bit, and you're off your journey with God, and then you're back on your journey with God, and then you're off your journey with God. I don't believe that. I think you come right out of the womb, and you're on this journey with God. And the safety of it all is the presence of God. David even looked back at his journey, and David had a really hairy journey. David looked back and said, I'll tell you how I feel about it. If I'd have made my grave in hell, he'd have been there with me. He was, because I made my bed in hell a few times. Stephen Register is there. I didn't know it, but he is there. He broke that bread. I don't know when that breaking of bread will happen for each person. I don't know where it will happen for you. I don't know where it will happen for me. Uh, the little girl who's been coming from Centennial, whose life is so devastated and broken, doesn't know what the heck we're doing. She keeps coming back. I don't know when it will be. Being in ministry for 30 years, I've had the privilege of having people walk up to me and say, when you said that, and I said, who knew? Who knew? I've had people come up to me and say, I've been searching all my life. And when you said that, I think you just misunderstood what I said. But if it worked for you and was your epiphany, I don't know when the bread gets broken for you, but I want you to notice something. When he broke the bread, something about his hands on that bread, I don't want you to watch this. The Bible says as soon as he appeared to them, as soon as they said, ah, you know what the next line in the text is? Immediately he disappeared. The opposite of epiphanao, to appear. He dis-epiphanaoed. He disappeared. As quickly as he appeared, he disappeared. But I want to tell you something. I used to think that his disappearances had to do with the fact that he finally figured out how bad I was and just couldn't take me anymore. People used to tell me all the time, don't you know God loves you? I'd say, yes, but I don't think he likes me very much. And there's a difference. I used to think the disappearances, the dark nights of the soul, the moments when you look up at the sky and say, where the heck are you? I thought that had something to do with God not being able to take me anymore and separating from me and saying, when you get your stuff together, we'll reconvene. Not true. The reason he disappears in your life sometime is to teach you an incredibly important lesson about his presence. If he was present even when he had not appeared, then that means when he disappears, he is still present. His presence has nothing to do with your visibility. His presence has nothing to do with your recognition. And so the Bible said they got it because they didn't see him and he was there. And when they saw him, he disappeared and they said, they didn't say, where did he go? Where did he go? God is gone. They smiled, looked at one another, and they said, didn't our hearts burn within us back there? They got it. They said, when we didn't see him, our hearts burned within us. And now, even as we don't see him, we know he is still present with us. That's what Jacob said. Jacob said, I wrestled with him all night long. And when the Lord disappeared, Jacob said, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. You know how I quoted that for years? Surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. That's not what he said. The Lord disappeared and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it, but I know it now because God's presence doesn't depend upon my sight. 
God's presence doesn't depend upon my sensation. God's presence depends upon God's love, and there's nothing I can do to separate me from that. Nothing. So, I will just tell you, as a person who does this professionally and tries to do it sincerely, life is like a long corridor, and sometimes the lights are on in that corridor. Sometimes you're snuggled up beside your grandmother, and you're listening to her alto voice saying, Save for the ninety and nine in the fold. Save through the night, though it was stormy and cold. But said the shepherd, when counting the sheep, one sheep is missing, there must be one more. The shepherd went out to search for his sheep, and all through the night o'er the rocky steep, he searched till he found him, with love bands he bound him. And I was that one lost sheep. You realize that your safety doesn't depend upon your navigation skills as a sheep. Your safety depends upon no matter how far away you get and no matter how high a percentage you're back in the fold, there is a shepherd who is never satisfied without us. And that light is so bright in those moments of recognition that you think that you will never lose it. But every now and then in this corridor of life, the light flickers dim and it will even go off. But I want to tell you what to do, dear cousin, when the light goes off. Keep walking. Keep walking knowing that the light is not the thing. The light is the absence of the thing. And remember in the darkness what you saw in the light. Close your eyes and see the bright lights even then. Walk through the darkness knowing, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not just beside still waters and green pastures. It's valleys of the shadow of death. What is it? He didn't say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I see you. No, no. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I've lost any eyesight to be able to see you. Yea, in spite of that, thou art, say it with me, thou art with me. Epiphany is a season. Epiphany is a season that is not built around epiphanies. Epiphany is a season that reminds you that even in the disappearances, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. He is with us. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these lovely people. Thank you for these people who have asked in myriads of ways, where is he? Where are you? Thank you, Lord, for those who come from afar, and thank you for those who have grown up near. Thank you, Lord, that you are always with us. And as we close this service and close this year, we reflect back on 2014, and in hindsight, we relish the fact that you have always been with us. As we look toward 2015, we trust that you will be with us still. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Be with us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the season of appearances and even the season of disappearances. Thank you that we know, as you said to Thomas, blessed are those who don't see, but they still believe. Thank you, Lord, that you're the kind of God who will stay with people who call him fella. And thank you, Lord, that you're the kind of God that hears my cousin's lament of atheism as prayer. <laughs> thank you that you hear his cries of loss as songs of praise because he misses you sore and you're a kind of God who counts missing as loving thank you for that kind of grace pour it into us all may we be respectful 
of wise men's journey no matter how far no matter how far away they live from us thank you lord for all of this wisdom you've given us today thank you for this season of epiphany we pray in christ's name and god's people said amen god bless go and be good to one another we'll see you in the house of the lord next week